Hello you guys, it's Katie, and welcome back to another episode of Crime and Crochet. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the Springfield 3, which is a missing persons case of three women who went missing from Springfield, Missouri. The Springfield 3 went missing from Springfield, Missouri on June 7th of 1992 and this was three women who went missing. It was Cheryl Levitt who was age 47, Susie Streeter who was 19 years old, and Stacy McCall who was 18 years old. The three women who went missing from Springfield, Missouri obviously became known as the Springfield Three because they went missing from Springfield, Missouri. And they are Cheryl Levitt, who was 47, her daughter, Susie Streeter, who was 19, and her friend, Stacy McCall, who was 18. And they all went missing on June 7th of 1992. Stacy and Susie, the two girls who were just 18 and 19, actually had their high school graduation the day before on June 6th of 1992, and they were last seen around 2 a.m. on June 7th when they were leaving the last of the few graduation parties that they had been attending that evening. Well, I guess I should say evening into that night because obviously 2 a.m. is not really the evening but anyway y'all know what I mean but the two girls were actually supposed to spend the night at another friend's house by the name of Janelle Kirby but when they went to her house they decided that it was too crowded and instead they left to go to Susie's house which was also obviously Cheryl's house because Cheryl was her mother. It is assumed that the two girls did make it to Susie's house that night because their jewelry, purses, clothing, and vehicles were at the house the next day. And the last time Cheryl, the mother, was heard from was at approximately 11.15 p.m. on June 6th, so the night of the graduation, when she spoke to a friend on the phone. Now, the timeline is of the disappearance and when they were last seen all of that is a little bit fuzzy just because the friends who said they last saw the girls that previous evening at 2 a.m also were the first ones to arrive at the house the next morning around 9 a.m the next morning janelle the friend that they were supposed to spend the night at her house And her boyfriend actually showed up at Susie's house where the two girls supposedly at least made it home since all of their belongings were there. They went over to her house because that day apparently they were supposed to spend the day at a water park and the plan was for them to leave from Janelle's house. That's why they were going to be spending the night. But when they weren't there, obviously, the next morning, they woke up and went to see where they were. When Janelle and her boyfriend, which, by the way, they keep just referring to him as her boyfriend and not really a name. So that's why I'm just calling him her boyfriend. But anyway, when Janelle and her boyfriend made it to their friend's house, 
they noticed that the front door was actually unlocked, so they kind of just let themselves in, and when they entered the house, they saw no sign of any of the three women who were supposed to be there, even though their cars were outside, and they also reported to police that a glass lampshade on the porch light was shattered, but the light bulb was still intact. So Janelle's boyfriend starts to sweep up the glass off the porch, which police later determined might have destroyed some of the potential evidence. Inside the house, they also found the dog, who was a Yorkshire Terrier named Cinnamon, and he did not appear to be very happy. He was very agitated while they were inside. And Janelle also answered a, quote, strange and disturbing call from an unidentified man who made, quote, sexual innuendos. And she hung up the phone and immediately received another call of a sexual nature, again, hanging up the phone. So that all is very strange. Not only the fact that they're going to walk into somebody's house, notice a lampshade on the porch broken and sweep it up. Notice the dog is really agitated. Answer the phone with this person making all kind of kinds of weird, you know, any windows and then they're just going to leave like they didn't do anything from what I'm seeing because they didn't even report anything because then several hours later you have Stacy's mother, Janice, who was obviously trying to contact her daughter cuz she hadn't been able to reach her. Obviously she gets worried, so she comes to the house. And she reportedly notices that all of their purses are still there and there's no sign of the women in the house, obviously. And, of course, she's getting even more nervous. She sees her daughter's clothing folded neatly from the night before. And um, there were some cigarettes that were left inside the house. You know, types of things that you would think a person wouldn't leave the house without. So, of course, she frantically calls the police from the home phone inside the house to report the three women missing. After placing the call, while checking the phone's answering machine, she listened to a strange message. Again, that's in quotes, strange message. But this strange message actually ended up getting erased, supposedly, accidentally but um who really knows but it does say the police were very interested in the call and they believe that it may have contained a clue but they also note that they believe it was not connected to the call that Janelle received while in the home which they called this a prank call I'm not really sure if you would consider it a prank call considering these circumstances but In some of the sources I'm reading, it is called a prank call. So by the time Stacy's parents contacted the police, it had already been about 16 hours since the women were last seen. 
and other worried friends and family called and visited the home within the following day. So police estimated that the crime scene had been basically corrupted by 10 to 20 people who visited the home in between that time. The police noted that there was no signs of a struggle in the house, and the only really thing that was out of place was the shattered light on the porch, but of course that was already cleaned up when the police got there, so they really couldn't do much as far as evidence with that. And they noted that the bed looked like it had been slept in as far as the mother's bed, and all personal belongings were at the property, including purses, money, cars, keys, cigarettes, and the family dog. So all things you would think if someone was leaving and had plans to leave and, you know, it was voluntary, they would take with them or at least let somebody know that they were leaving so they could take care of the dog or something like that, you know? So all that kind of stuff in a case like this makes investigators and even people like us just hearing about the case makes us lean more towards it was not them wanting to disappear. It was obviously an outside source or something like that. At least that's the conclusion I come to and the investigators come to. A few months later, this was on December 31st of 1992, a man called the America's Most Wanted hotline with information about the women's disappearances, but the call was actually disconnected when the switchboard operator attempted to link up this caller with the Springfield investigators. So the police did say that the caller, quote, had prime knowledge of the abductions and they publicly asked for the man to contact them, but he never did. Now, a few years later, in 1997, Susie and her mom were both legally declared as dead, which you can do in most states, I believe, maybe even all states. You have to wait five years after person has been missing, but after that, you can legally declare them as dead if the family decides to do so. So obviously, in this case, that's what the family decided to do, but their official case files and everything are still filed under missing because obviously they have not found any bodies or anything like that in this case. Years later, there was one tip that came in about a woman's body being buried under a hospital's parking garage. Now, this was something that was never really looked into because according to the police, this lead actually came from someone who either claimed to be a psychic or had some sort of dream about this and it wasn't actually a tip from anybody that was there or saw anything or heard something from somebody that was there. Nothing like that. It was basically not credible enough for them to go and dig up a whole parking garage because according to the tip, the woman's body was buried underneath a parking garage not just like buy it or something so they would have to like dig up all the concrete all of that so they weren't going to do that just for this one tip that isn't very credible which honestly can't really blame them 
but um that's kind of really the only thing they have other than we do have one suspect to discuss a little bit of information on but this case is still unsolved and this is again one of those cases where the person just up and disappears leaves everything behind vehicle purse belongings that you would expect them to take with them like an episode we had just a few weeks ago where the lady went missing from her job at a gas station in the middle of the night it just perplexes me it's one thing if it's like a murder where you at least have a body you know how they were killed or something along those lines you can at least make a rational explanation that somebody did this to this person but when you have no body you have zero explanation on what even happened so these are the cases that are the most perplexing to me anyway i just need to tell you all about the suspect now i'm just rambling in 1997 robert cox who was imprisoned in texas as a convicted kidnapper and robber and a suspect in a Florida murder told a journalist that he knew the three women who had been murdered and buried and claimed that their bodies would never be recovered. In 1992, which was obviously the year they disappeared, Robert did live in Springfield, Missouri, and when interviewed then, told the investigators that he was with his girlfriend at church on the morning of the disappearance and his girlfriend did corroborate this story but later on she actually recanted her statement and said that he asked her to say that and that's why she lied to the police now he also stated that he was home with his parents the night of their disappearance and his parents did confirm that alibi but To this day, authorities are still uncertain if he was actually involved in this case or if he was just seeking recognition for the alleged murders by issuing false statements. He did state to the authorities and journalists he would disclose what happened to the three women after his mother died. So I guess he didn't want his mother to um, be involved in any way or maybe get in any trouble because um, she was obviously lying for him if he was not home that night and um, she said he was, you know? That's the only thing I can think of would be the reason for not telling the police now and instead waiting until his mother passes away. Now, also could just be him wanting to come up with a story for more publicity if he's already a convicted robber and kidnapper and a suspect in a florida murder maybe he thinks that he's gonna be on like death row or something florida does have the death penalty still so maybe he thinks that's the case and um he just wants to kind of buy more time for himself i don't know that does happen in some other cases as well and um also when there's convicted killers you know, robbers, whatever they are convicted of in prison, they get bored. So sometimes they just come up with stories like that because they've researched cases like this 
or they hear it on the news while they're in jail or in prison, something like that, and they just get bored, so they decide to pretend like they were the person that did it, even if they weren't, which does seem crazy to, like, the outside person, because you think, why would you want to be convicted of another murder or of more charges, you know what I mean? But if you already have life in prison or you're already on death row, at that point, it's just entertainment for you, which is very sick and twisted, especially for the victims and their family. But unfortunately, that is the truth. Now, this case is still unsolved. Obviously, Robert has never been charged with any of this because there's really no way to prove if his statements are true or not until he decides to come forward with more information or he can tell investigators where a body or all three bodies would be, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that's really basically it. Another case where it's really super interesting and obviously unsolved, so another one that kind of leaves you scratching your head, unfortunately. I kind of love cases like this because it makes you think, but I also kind of hate them because sometimes I just want an answer. So I try to do my fair share of both type of cases. But um, anyway, we are going to move on to this week's crochet pattern since obviously there's not much more to talk about with this case. For this week's crochet pattern, we have the Boba Snail Pattern by Choco.Apple.Shop on Instagram. And this pattern is also on Ravelry and the shop name is Choco Apple. And this pattern is a free pattern. Skill level is beginner to intermediate. And you can customize your boba snail, make it any flavor, such as milk tea, strawberry, matcha, mango, or really anything. And you can pick your favorite color for the straw as well. So this is a really super cute pattern, you guys. And um, also a really popular one. So if you guys really like boba or um, know somebody that does, this could make a great gift. Or, of course, a fun little project for yourself as well. So if you guys are interested in checking out this pattern, it will always be on my Instagram at Crime and Crochet. You can see a picture of this pattern as well as my sources from this episode and pictures of the people involved in this case. And you can also check out the Instagram of the crochet pattern creator through my Instagram each week, plus the link to the pattern. So um, my Instagram is kind of a central location to find all of that if you guys are interested. But um, yeah, that is this week's crochet pattern for um, the boba snail, which is super cute. So again, before I wrap up this episode, I just wanted to remind you guys that you can check out today's crochet pattern as well as my sources, pictures of the people involved in this case, and much, much more over on my Instagram at Crime and Crochet as all one word, as well as if you want to help me out, the best way you can help me is leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on if you are enjoying the podcast. With that, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join me here next Saturday for the next episode of Crime and Crochet, and make sure y'all are staying safe out there so you don't end up being one of these victims we talk about every week.
Goodbye, y'all.